let us kind of dive right back into the Gospel of Luke. And chapter 6, we are still on verses 27 through 42. So I invite you to hear these words. Luke says this, But I say to you who are listening, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes away what is yours, do not ask for it back again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive payment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and expect, expecting nothing in return. Wait, where did I go? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. Just seeing if you're paying attention. Instead, love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. For he himself is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man guide a blind person? Will not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above the teacher, but every disciple who is fully qualified will be like the teacher. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, friend, let me take out the speck in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your presence this morning, and we pray that you would be with us, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, let me remind us, uh, all of us, that last week we began what it's called oftentimes the Sermon on the plane. And as we discovered, these are not exactly the easiest of the teachings of Jesus, right? It begins, of course, on a good note, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are those who weep, and we can get behind that. But then, of course, Jesus turns and begins to give us the woes. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are filled. Woe to you who are laughing, and as we said, these are hard words for most of us to hear, but the good news is that I don't think that Jesus was trying to make us feel guilty in the least. Rather, I think what Jesus is trying to do is save our souls from the death and decaying effect that wealth can have if we are not mindful of it. And if nothing else, this week, from what I've heard from several of you, you had some great uh, home group discussion around this particular topic and around uh, this particular scripture passage. 
Well, this week, as we look at the Sermon on the Plain, it's clear that things haven't gotten a whole lot easier. Instead, Jesus continues by saying, you need to love your enemies. And then he continues by saying that if you get hit in your cheek, you need to turn your other cheek. And if someone asks for your cloak, go ahead and just give them your shirt anyway. It's this very difficult kind of uh, words for us to hear. And it's likely if you were just, you know, if this isn't the, if this was the first time you had heard this, that you would be somewhat amazed by these words of Jesus. Like, who in the world would live like this? And once again, just like we said last week, uh, Jesus is using, as Robert Tannehill says, very forceful and imaginative language here. Remember last week we said that, that Jesus is trying to wake us up. We, we compared it to a parent trying to keep their child from running across the parking lot. He's kind of yelling at them. You have to pay attention. You can't run across uh, the parking lot of wealth blissfully unaware and not realize that you are going to be smacked. And in the same way, Jesus is trying to wake us up here to say, hey, look, you are supposed to live a very different kind of life, a life where people love their enemies, a life where people are willing to be vulnerable to others. It should almost seem absurd. Now, I want to just say one brief caveat here which is that I think that what Jesus is trying to do is wake us up here. I don't think that what Jesus is saying is that we should just be willingly being abused in any way. At times, I think this passage can be used in unhealthy ways. So let us be very clear. Jesus is not asserting here that if you are being abused in some way, that you should just stay with that, that that's the way of Jesus. That's not at all what Jesus is saying here. Jesus rather is trying to say, look, the way that everyone around you and the way that feels natural to you in terms of lashing out at enemies is not the way of the coming kingdom of God. And so Jesus continues to work through us and he says, look, you know what? If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? If you lend to those who you know you will receive back, what credit is that to you? And one of the important things to see is that that word credit is actually the same word for grace. And so as Tim Keller points out, one of the things that we begin to see going on here is that literally what Jesus is saying is if you only love those who love you, are you actually showing any kind of grace? If you only lend to those who you know will give you back, what kind of grace are you showing? If you are only good to those who you know are going to be good back to you, what kind of grace is that? There is nothing unmerited and what it is that you are doing. And if we are supposed to be different than the world around us, which means a people of grace, then we need to be living differently. And then verse 36 goes on, and it says that we are to be merciful just as God is merciful. Now, another way to translate that word merciful is to use the word compassionate that we are to be compassionate as God is compassionate. And Hebrew scholars tell us that in Hebrew, the word for compassion is the, is the same word as the word for womb. And that the only difference are vowels. And actually in the original Hebrew, there weren't even any vowel markers. It's made it kind of difficult really to be able to read. So it would look 
exactly the same. And Trevor Hudson says that there's something to this connection between being compassionate and the womb because it is the same kind of other-centered, self-giving and sacrificial love that a mother has for a child. Now, before Megan, my wife got pregnant uh, four times, uh, actually five times, I have to tell you that I had never really realized um, just how difficult being pregnant really was. But once she got pregnant, I began to learn very quickly what it was like, right? At the beginning, of course, you're oftentimes uh, morning sick. Uh, you, you, you don't sleep very well, especially as the days go on. Uh, if it's the summertime, you get really, really hot. Um, she had sciatica for a while, so she really wasn't able to get along very well or walk very well. And, and then after a miscarriage, after that, then we had all this emotional, right, a stress, like, is the baby going to be okay? And you're, you're always going to the hospital or the doctors to get, to, to get checked in, all of these kinds of things are happening. And this is for someone you don't even yet actually know and for whom you know, because you've seen it at times, they may just leave, right? You never know. Well, they will leave prayerfully someday, right? But, uh, but, but you don't know exactly what it's going to look like. And yet there is this great sacrifice that these mothers make in their womb as they carry this unborn child. And what Hudson says is this is the same way that compassion is. What is compassion? Compassion is being willing to bear the burden of others. To be able to to bear the burdens, the sacrifice, to carry that for others. And it's this fascinating reminder to us. In fact, Hudson says that sometimes it's hard to measure. How are you growing in your faith journey? How are you growing in He says, one of the best ways to ask that question or to measure is, how is your compassion? Is your compassion growing? Are you willing to bear the burdens of others more and more? And this is one of the ways that we can begin to discern how are we in our own journey? How are we being compassionate? Well, then Jesus continues on and he begins to talk about judging. Now, this is always kind of a hard part for us to know. Judge not lest you be judged. Don't condemn unless you're going to be condemned. But what exactly does that mean? And here I think it's important for us to think through and go through the rest of the passage and to look at this image that Jesus gives us. He gives us this image or a parable as he calls, as Luke calls it, where he says, look, if you look into the uh, eyes of others or you should not worry about the speck in their eye, right? The flaw that they have, the small flaw, right? When you have this plank in your own eye. Now, what exactly does this mean? We're not supposed to judge and to, to watch out, right? That we don't just see the specks in others' eyes. What is Jesus trying to say here? Is Jesus saying we should never challenge one another? Is Jesus saying that we shouldn't ever call someone on the carpet? Is that what he's saying? I don't think that's what he's saying, but what it does seem very clear what he is trying to tell us in this, again, powerful and emotive language is that it is much easier for us to see the flaws in others than it is to see the flaws in ourselves. We are much more likely to see the small little missteps or sins or brokenness in someone else than we are even to see the massive sin or brokenness within our own selves. G.K. Chesterton said it like this. He said, the problem with critics is not that they criticize the world. It's that they never criticize themselves. And so one of the things that happens, of course, is that as you become more aware of our, oh, your own sin and brokenness, 
that the amount of times that you criticize others and the posture with which you criticize them begins to change dramatically. Pastor Stan this week on the Scott and Stan podcast, because now they've gone podcast. It's interesting, isn't it? That it used to be the more developed things got, then you would go to video. And now it's actually like the opposite. Like now they're so trending that it's a podcast. So, so they have their own podcast now. And so what it says is, what he said was, he brings up this great quote it's from D.T. Niles. It says, Christianity is one beggar leading, showing another beggar where to find food. And I think this is this great notion of the difference it looks like when you are challenging somebody, what you are is you are one beggar who knows what it's like to be sinful and broken, and you are simply coming alongside someone else to kind of journey uh, together. It's not criticizing from on high, rather it is kind of journeying alongside one another. And so what do we do with this particular passage? You've got all these things that we're supposed to do. Love our enemies, turn the other cheek, uh, be good to those, even those who are mean to you. Lend even if you're not going to receive anything back. You have all these things. And so the question is, what do we do with that? And I, my guess is that in a congregation like ours, we do one of two things. Some of us love this kind of challenge and we think, all right, we've got this. We're going to love our enemies. We're going to do this. And, and you go home and you do it like once or twice, maybe during the week. And then, you, then, then it just becomes far too hard and you begin to struggle. And before you know it, you know, you're like, oh, I, don't, I, I didn't get it. And so you come back next Sunday ready for another flogging to say, okay, how can we try to do it again this week? And then you just repeat that. Others of us, you know, we go into something like this and we say, you know, pastor, it would be much better world if we could live like this. I agree with you, but I also know myself and I realize that this is never going to happen. Therefore, I'm gonna say thanks, but I'm not gonna think about it very much. I think both of these are very natural responses. But what I wanna suggest today is that if you want to learn what it means to love your enemy and begin to actually do it, if you want to be able to lend to those, even if you don't expect to return anything in return, then the place to begin is not with those instructions at all. N.T. Wright says that kind of our response to these instructions is all about which God we believe in. In other words, it does not start with the instructions. It starts with our view of God. So I want to go back on a quick little journey. We've talked about this before, but I want to go back to the Ten Commandments because I think there's actually some interesting parallels between that and between this part of the Gospel of Luke. Remember the Ten Commandments. What does Moses do? Before he goes to those Ten Commandments, he, uh, he goes up Mount Sinai, right? And he begins to spend time with, his father, with God, right? He spends time with God. Then he comes down to the Israelites, you know, his, his people. And he begins those commandments by saying what? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. How does he begin? He begins by saying, I am your God and I loved you so much that I brought you up out of Egypt. I'm the one who called you when you were there and enslaved and in chains. I called you up, not because there was anything particularly special about you, but because I loved you and I brought you then here out of Egypt toward the promised land. And then he begins to give them all of those commandments. Slowly but surely, he then tells them how they are to live. 
But as someone has said, what is absolutely critical to see here is that command arises from relationship. Relationship does not arise from command. Command arises from relationship. It comes out of relationship. So what's the parallel? Well, look at Luke. What is, remember last week, what happens? Jesus, where does Jesus go? I feel like just kind of hanging here for a minute. Where does he go? To begin, right before, before he gives any of these instructions, where has he been? Up on a mountain. And, and, and with whom has he been spending time? With God. And then he comes down. And do you remember what he does immediately after he comes down? This is good. This is how quickly things leave us. This is fine. You guys are looking. He calls his disciples. He looks to the people. Remember what, what did God do? Take a what does Moses do? Moses comes down and he looks out over those people. I'm the Lord, your God. You know, I'm the one who brought you out. And here's Jesus. And what does he do immediately? He calls them. He says, you are the 12 disciples. You are my disciples. And what did we say last week? I'm not gonna ask this because it took a little while to get here. What did he say? He said, he loves them and he calls them in spite of the fact that he knows Right, He knows their journey, that they are not going to be perfect, that they're going to have flaw after flaw after flaw. And yet he calls them and he loves them anyways. And then he gives them the instructions. And then he begins to tell them what to do. There's this remarkable parallel between the Ten Commandments and between Luke and, this, and what Jesus is doing here. And I think this is critical for us to see that the commands, the instructions are born out of loving relationship. Because here is what happens. If you do not do this, if you flip it, then rather than becoming more generous and more loving and more kind and more full of grace, you actually become less generous, less loving, less graceful. Some of the most graceless people I know are Christians who begin with command and who, who detach it from relationship because it becomes a chain rather than breaking a chain. And it changes the whole dynamic. So let's think about this. What if, let's just say 15 years ago, someone came to me and said, okay, Jerry, here's what I want you to do. These are my list of instructions. I want you to immediately start giving up about 40% of your annual salary. That feels like a lot, okay. And um, about every other year, for 12 months, I want you, this is my instruction, to get almost two hours less sleep every single night. Okay. And I want you to increase, because this is the truth, research shows, your stress level by 10 times what it, what it has been up to this point. And I would love for you to double the likelihood of you having high blood pressure or a heart attack. Now, who is hearing that list of commands and instructions and saying, oh, sign me up. That sounds like a great time. And yet, any of us who have children, this is exactly what we have done. Again, I'm not making this up. This is research-oriented. Those numbers, this is what happens. 
But none of us start there and detach it from the relationship and just say, well, this sounds like it'll be great. No. Why? Because you start with relationship and you start with seeing this child, right, who, who, who you love and, 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 and who all of a sudden begins to make eye contact with you and then they begin to say, dada. Again, research says that's what they say first, which doesn't seem right, but it's true. And then they begin to walk, right? And then you begin to have conversations and then you see them grow and your, your maturity level, that, that begins to change and you begin to have these deeper conversations and it's a remarkable time, right? And what's amazing is that actually the 40% that you give away and the 10 times the stress and the lack of sleep, that's actually nothing because at some point, the vast majority of us would give up our very lives for our children. But the reason why is not because we start with command and instruction and the cost. The reason why is because we begin with relationship. So therefore, nothing is out of, we'll do whatever out of this loving relationship. See, and this is what happens. This is where we oftentimes get mixed up when it comes to following Jesus and saying, okay, what are these instructions? As soon as we detach it from the God who says, I am calling you because I love you in the midst of your brokenness and pain, it matters. I love you. That if we only will start there, then these things begin to be added. Why is that? You see, what's remarkable, it seems to me, is that if you want to begin to love your enemies, if you want to begin to say, what does it look like to turn the other cheek or to begin to give to others in spite of the fact that I might not come back in return, is that it has nothing to do with them. You see, sometimes you think, okay, I will start loving my enemy as soon as they become just slightly more lovable. Or I will give to somebody as long as I at least get back five or 10%. But you see, what this is saying, and this is the truth, is that our ability, and this is one of the things that uh, one commentator says, which I think is just remarkable, which says that there's a great amount of freedom that comes when your love is not dependent on the performance of others. Because the way in which we grow in loving others in spite of the fact of what they may or may not give to us is because we have finally begun to understand just how much love God has for us. You see, when you begin to understand that even though we are easily oftentimes our enemies of God, God continues to love us. When you begin to see all of your own missteps and yet God continues to forgive you. When you begin to see how all that God has given us and yet so often we forget about it or we don't see it, you know, and yet God continues to give more and more. What happens? The more that we begin to grow in our understanding of that love and that generosity, it begins to pour over. Did you hear this line? It says, it is like a good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, that it will be put into your lap. What is that? This is like what they would do with grain. You'd have like a bag, for instance, out, right? And, and they'd be pouring grain or some kind of container in which they're putting in grain. But this is the sense of what he's saying is it's like it's pouring over. So it gets, it's getting caught in the folds in your clothes and it's getting caught in your lap. Why? Because there's so much, because God keeps pouring more love, more forgiveness, more generosity. And as he does, and as it then begins to pour over, 
over into others' lives. This is what happens. The way to begin to love your enemy is not to try to kind of figure out, well, why is my enemy lovable? No, no, no. It is to remember, oh, God loves me so much. God's generosity, God's forgiveness. And the more that that begins to pour over us, the more it will begin to flow over, not because our enemies are lovable, but because of the fact that we cannot help it because of how much love we have received from God. But that only happens when you begin with the Almighty. But let me also be clear about one last thing, which is that while we begin with our relationship with God, the truth is that it is practiced right here in our community of faith. This is really hard for us in our individualistic world to really begin to comprehend. What we want to do when it comes to these kinds of instructions is that we want to take them home, try it a little bit at home, and then, and then come back. But again, as someone has pointed out, when, does this, when are these instructions given? They are given after Jesus calls the 12, after he calls them together. The place in which we practice this hard love is within these walls. This is where we practice this. Within your enemies that you have here within the church or you give in such a way that you don't know if you'll return within the church. This is how it begins to be worked out in community. I love what Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon say about working this out in community. Here's what, here's what they say. They say this, apart from this community, the commands of God appear heroic, impossible, idealistic, or just odd. Church, a community of the forgiven, a people who keep coming together to worship God, makes the commandments intelligible. What is that saying? It's saying that the way in which this begins to make sense for the world around us, they are likely not just gonna pick up Luke 6 and begin to say, oh, I wonder what this means. And if they do, we may not want them to just read it because we need them to see how this comes out of a loving place of who God is, right? And so where do they see it? They see it because the community makes it intelligible. A community that is living it out, like here at ZPC, who is being generous and who's loving even those with whom we disagree. It begins to be worked out here. That's what makes this intelligible. And then they go on to say this provocative statement. They say this, Christians are not primarily people who believe something religious, but rather we are people who have been called to live the sort of lives in community whereby if this God does not exist, the way we live our lives makes no sense. Belief is too flaccid. When Christians are busy believing, we are not assenting to a set of religious platitudes. We are putting our bodies on the line, betting every day that God rules the world, that God's way will triumph in the world. What are they saying? They're saying that we live in such a way that if God didn't exist, it would make no sense how we are living. That the way in which we are loving our enemies, it makes no sense to the world. Why would you love your enemy unless God exists? It makes no sense to give and not expect something in return unless there is a God. It makes no sense to be kind to those who are mean to us unless there is a God. And we work that out here in community. I was thinking about that this week. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, I said something about the food pantry and the workers and how... Um, I, uh, I should have said this, but how I kind of liked it uh, when the weather was really bad uh, and they're out there working in it. And, and the reason why I liked it um, was because of the fact that it, 
it helped even more so to show how weird they were and the fact that how odd it is that people would be out there in inclement weather, right? Giving uh, a, a food to people. It's just like this strange thing. Like, why would you do this? You would only do this, it seems to me, if there was a God who said, this is a part of our call. And it's this beautiful image, right? And so this week, Thursday, you might not, might not, might not remember, Thursday was a really bad day in the afternoon. It was a weird day. And then it got really windy and really cold. And so, uh, and, and so they sent me this picture saying, living out your sermon. Here's this picture that they sent. You can kind of see, there they are. And it was super windy. And they were, uh, I mean, I love Jesus. Judy, uh, on the second from the left, her face, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pained. Um, and, 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 and it's just, it just this, right? It was not nice out, right? But they're like, this is a sign, right? And I love that. I love this, this image of them being out there and just this reminder. The reason why we do this is not because of who we are and it's not even because of who they are. It's because of the sense of being loved by God, of saying God will go through anything, even the most inclement of time, the most inclement of weather. And I want us to remember this. You see, this is what a part of what we do as a church body. We are a people who are called to love our enemies. We are a people who are called to be kind even to those who are unkind to us. We are called to be living, breathing witnesses to Luke chapter 6. And so my encouragement to us today is to do all of those things. But it is to start with relationships. If you were to say to me, Jerry, how do we start being critical of others in a good way? How does, what does that look like? Let me, let me give you one piece of criticism that I think that all of us probably should have for each other. And that is this. We should criticize likely one another for the fact that there's a very good chance that you do not understand just how much God loves that there is a remarkable chance that you live your life in such a way that you have no idea just how generous God is to you. That you oftentimes forget. I'd love for you to say this to somebody. You seem to forget just how forgiving God actually is. Because when you begin to remember the love and the grace and the generosity of God, then we will begin to see others in a different way because we will be filled up again and again and again. May this be so that we might then be living, breathing examples of Luke 6, a people desperately loved by God, for God and for God's glory alone. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we pray for your spirit to be with us. Lord, when it comes to instructions like this, it's easy for us to either simply not take them seriously or to believe them so deeply and yet to forget to whom they are connected so that we continually fail and wonder why we are even trying. This morning, Lord, I pray that you would speak to each person here, that they would hear this criticism, that they do not yet grasp fully just how much you love them.
that they do not yet grasp fully just how forgiving you are, that they do not yet fully grasp just how full of grace you are to them. And that as we begin to grow in our understanding of this, that our hearts will begin to overflow in such a way that we love despite the fact that we may receive no love in return because we know that this is so often how you have worked with us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. stand with us as we sing this last song again. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head.